invite you to grab your Bible if you have one and go to Psalm 63 with me, if you will. Uh, Psalm chapter 63. Today we are in week two of a three-part series called More. Uh, I shared with you last week, if you were here, um, and even if you weren't here, this is good for you to know that originally my plan was to preach something else this month. Uh, I was thinking that in May, I would preach through this short little Old Testament book called Habakkuk, which is actually a book in your Bible. I promise we're going to come back to it in the future. Uh, But as I started making plans for that series, I had zero peace about preaching it. Instead, what I experienced was this strong impression from the Holy Spirit that I needed to preach something else. And by the way, that was very nerve wracking for me. Uh, I'm a planner. I'm the type of guy that that has our teaching calendar planned out like a a year in advance at least. So to be a month out and to have no idea what I was supposed to preach, like I was a little stressed out. And and so a few weeks ago, I took a prayer retreat day and I decided going in that I was going to pray and just ask God to tell me what to preach until he answered. And the good news is he did pretty early on in the day. Uh, He birthed in me the idea for this series and made it very, very clear to me that I needed to teach something this month to help prepare our church for our upcoming move. You see, many of you know that in this next season of church life, we are finally, finally, finally moving into a new building. Finally, after 16 months of waiting, finally moving, praise Jesus. And uh, if you want more details on the timeline, by the way, go back and watch last week's message. I kind of shared our timeline in detail. Don't wanna take too much time with that today. Uh, But as excited as I am for our move, as I shared last week, I'm also fearful in some ways. And there are two big things that scare me. Number one, it scares me to think that after we move in, we might put expectations on a building that God has put on us. Meaning that if we're not careful, we can easily slip into that if we build it, they will come mentality. You know, we've built this great new space and, and now we're just gonna sit back and expect people to show up to see what we've built. And although I'm sure people are gonna do that, we just have to remember buildings don't reach people, people reach people, amen? And so what we cannot do is shove off the mission Jesus has given to us onto some structure made of wood and stone. You see, it's our responsibility to take the gospel outside our walls to the world, not the responsibility of a building to attract people inside its walls to hear it. The second thing that scares me is this. It scares me to think that after we move in, we might settle in. And again, it scares me because I've seen it happen. I've watched churches like ours build buildings and move into new spaces and they get there and they kick their feet up. They relax, they get comfortable, they start believing and behaving as if their work is done. And again, we just have to remember our work is never done. As long as there are people outside of our walls who are far from God and don't know Jesus, there is work to do, amen? And so in this next season, we have to be more relentless about our mission than ever before. Now, as I've wrestled with those fears, uh, I found myself asking the question, okay, God, how in the world do we as a church avoid falling into those traps? And I'm sure there are many answers, many more answers than the ones I'm gonna give, but but I really have sensed God saying back to me, James, in order to avoid those traps as a church, you have to see me more clearly. You have to seek me more desperately and you have to experience me more fully. And that's what this series is all about. Over the course of these three weeks, We are looking at three prayers from some godly men in the scriptures, men who saw God, sought after God, asked to experience God, 
And my hope is that by the end of this series, their prayers would become our prayers so that as we walk into this next season, we walk as a people who desire more of God above anything else in life. And so with that said, we're gonna dive in and get to work, all right? If your Bibles are already open to Psalm 63, we're gonna read the entire Psalm together And then we're going to spend our time today talking about the importance of seeking God desperately. So let's read. If you don't have a Bible, this will be on the screens for you. Here's what it says. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life, those people shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now, let me give you some context, because this is really going to help bring this psalm to life, all right? Uh, This particular psalm was written by a guy named King David. King David was one of Israel's most famous kings, uh, most well-known kings, But David also spent two seasons of his life hiding out in the wilderness because there were men chasing him down, trying to kill him. And so if you actually look in your Bible at the beginning of the Psalm, the title tells us that David wrote this during one of those seasons. He was in the wilderness of Judah. One of the men that tried to kill him was King Saul. Uh, He was this very angry, insecure, jealous king that David eventually replaced And then the other guy who tried to kill him was David's own son. His name was Absalom. You can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, Absalom started to conspire against his father, wanted to overtake the throne. And so David, the king at the time, he actually fled the city of Jerusalem to escape the potential violence of his own boy. We have no idea which season the psalm was written during All we know, look, all we know is that David wrote as a man desperate for God. I'm sure you sense that as we read it together, but but you really see this right out of the gate. In verse one, David uses his surroundings to describe his desperation. You see, the Judean wilderness is different than what we might think of when we think of a wilderness. A lot of us probably think of trees and uh, green stuff and just a very lush environment. The Judean wilderness was basically a desert, I don't know if you've ever been in a desert. The closest I've come to one has been in Burkina Faso, West Africa. Uh, If you're new to our church, our church works in this little country in West Africa called Burkina on the south end of the Sahara Desert. It's very dry. It's very dusty. The ground is really tough. And there's not a lot of water available to people there, which is one of the reasons we take so seriously drilling clean water wells in Burkina, right? Shameless plug for our coffee bar drink our coffee. We use the proceeds to drill clean water wells. So leave your Starbucks at Starbucks, drink our stuff. All right. It matters. We're doing something good with it. But what you find in Burkina are people so desperate for water that they literally walk miles each and every day to get it. And that's the imagery here in the passage. 
David is saying in verse one, just like that thirsty person who's been in the desert for days with nothing to drink, God, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you, it faints for you, God, earnestly I seek you. Now, as I read that this past week, I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that every single person who showed up to church this weekend would show up desperate for something in that way. You see, here's the reality. There is something in your life right now that your soul thirsts for, that your flesh yearns for, longs for. It's that thing in your life that you seek over and above everything else. And the question is, what is that thing for you? And I want you to be honest, all right? Like, don't give the churchy answer just because we're in church. Like, don't say, oh, what's the Lord for me? For some of you, that's not the answer at all. Like, if some of you were being honest, you would have to say, well, for me, it's money. For me, it's pleasure or it's power and success. For, for me, it's substance, uh, some type of substance or, or some type of relationship, right? Look, regardless of what your answer may be, can I tell you why you long so desperately for that thing? It's because deep down inside of you, you believe if I get it, I'll be satisfied. If I can just attain what I'm after, I will finally know some joy and peace in my life. But can I tell you the truth? I mean, I think that's why you guys hired me as your pastor to tell you the truth, right? So can I just tell you the truth? Here's the truth. And some of you know this from your own experiences. The truth is temporary things don't satisfy. They don't. And the ultimate proof of that truth is found in the fact that the more of those temporary things you get, the more of those temporary things you want. I mean, think about it with me. You go from being broke to making the money you've always wanted to make, only to realize there's still more money to be made. Uh, you climb that ladder of success to, uh, to the heights that you've always dreamed of, and then you look up and go, uh, there are still rungs above my head. <laughs> Uh, what about this? You finally convince that person that you've been chasing after for so long to get in that relationship with you, praise Jesus, right? And, and then you guys start walking together and you realize quickly, oh my gosh, they are just as broken as I am. Or how about this one? You, you buy that nice new shiny thing you've been obsessed with and then two weeks later, they release the new version. It's frustrating, isn't it? But this is why, look, this is why the writer of Ecclesiastes another great Old Testament book in your Bible that you need to read sometime. It's why the writer of Ecclesiastes says that pursuing satisfaction in temporary things is like chasing after the wind. You wanna look like a fool today? Leave here and go chase after some wind. Like just go to Dellinger, right? Or, you know, Sam Smith, just go some, and just chase after and watch people's reactions, what is that fool doing, right? Because we all know chasing after the wind, it's a pointless pursuit. And just when you think you have it, you've lost it. That's what pursuing satisfaction in temporary things is like. And so I just wanna say to you, pile up all the earthly stuff you wanna pile up. Attain or obtain all that your heart desires today. But just know as you pursue those things, you will never be more satisfied than you were when you first started. Why? Because again, temporary things don't satisfy. This is something David seemed to understand. But he also understood what I pray we understand today. And it's this, that true satisfaction is found in God alone. It's found in God alone. And I wanna to try to illustrate this for you like David illustrates it in the text, all right? 
Uh, if you've been around our church for a while, you know that for the past couple of years, we've started off our year with a 21-day season of prayer and fasting. Well, this year in 2018, I fasted from several food items, one of which was peanut butter. And that may not sound like a big deal to some of y'all, but it was a big deal for me because I'm a peanut butter guy, okay? Like, I'm the type of guy that eats a, a few scoops out of the jar every day. So I knew it was going to be hard going in. Uh, praise Jesus, I, I made it through 21 days. I, I did the almond butter thing, and God bless you almond butter people. Like, it is not the same, okay? And don't try to act like it is because it ain't, all right? But, but I made it through 21 days, and on day 22, I broke out the peanut butter jar and I scooped out this monstrous mound of crunchy peanut butter. Do I have some crunchy peanut butter? Thank you. So creamy people, we love y'all, but at some point you gotta get on board because crunchy's where it's at. But I scooped out this mound of crunchy peanut butter and seriously, as soon as it touched my lips, I had a worship experience in my kitchen. <laughs> you think I'm kidding, I'm not kidding. Like I started praising Jesus for being so kind as to create the peanut so that guys like me could enjoy the delicious gift that is peanut butter, all right? Listen, I need you to know in verse five, in verse five, this is the type of experience David is describing. He moves from the desert to the dinner table and he says, just like incredible food satisfies the body physically, Seeking desperately after God does the same for the soul spiritually. You see, simply teaching this, don't miss it, that your soul needs God in the same way your body needs food. But if you don't eat food, what happens to your body? It withers away, doesn't it? If you don't feast upon God spiritually, a very similar thing happens to your soul. This is why you see people and, and probably some of us in the room today chasing after all these other things to try and find joy and satisfaction. They know something is going on inside of me. It feels like my soul's being crushed. The life is being squeezed out of it. They just don't know where to look to find true satisfaction. But again, if you don't feast upon him spiritually, your soul will slowly wither away. And why is that true? Well, it's true for a very simple reason. Please don't miss this. It's true because God made you for himself. He's a jealous God. He's a God that cares about his own glory. And contrary to what certain people believe in our culture today, maybe even some of us in this room um, God doesn't exist for you. It's not the other way around, right? I know people wrongly believe at times, well, God exists to keep me happy. God exists to keep me comfortable. He exists to make me great and successful. Wrong. Like God loves you and God is for you, but God doesn't exist for you. You exist for him, for his glory, for his honor, for his namesake. But the only reason you have breath in your lungs today is so that you can live a life that makes much of who God is. And God designed your soul in such a way that in order to know true satisfaction, that satisfaction can only be found when you seek him desperately and know him intimately. And so the question is, how in the world do you seek God in desperation like that? Well, let me give you the answer, all right? If you're taking notes, write this down. And if you don't take a whole lot from today's message, at least take this. This is the biggest idea we're gonna talk about today. I need you to know that desperation is a deliberate decision. But desperation is a deliberate decision. 
So in other words, no one drifts into desperation by accident. (laughs) People who are desperate for God are desperate for God because they choose to be desperate for God. And this is the pattern that we see all throughout Psalm 63. All right, I want to show it to you. Look at David's deliberate decision to be desperate. In verse 1, he says, earnestly, I seek you. Verse 3, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. Verse four, again, I will lift up my hands. He says, in your name, I will lift up my hands. Verse five, my soul will be satisfied. Verse five, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse seven, I will sing for joy. What I love about David is he was a man of great resolve. A man who made a conscious and and even premeditated decision to seek desperately after God. And even when his life got hard, remember again where he was when he was writing this? He's hanging out in the wilderness, probably in some cave somewhere in the desert, men trying to take his life from him. Even when life got hard, he didn't go back on the decision that he made. Why? Because this decision didn't depend on his circumstances or his emotions. David wasn't the guy who said, well, if today goes okay, I'll seek God desperately. (laughs) As long as life stays calm and it stays easy, I'll seek after the Lord. No, David was the guy going, I don't care what's going on in my world or in my life. I'm gonna seek desperately after him. Why? Because of what we talked about a moment ago. He was a man who understood that true satisfaction is found in God and him alone. And so I just wonder today, look, have you made a similar decision? Have you? Look, are you the person in the room who has personally resolved regardless of what happens in my life, good or bad, regardless of the circumstances that come my way, my lips will praise the Lord. I will bless him for as long as I live. In his name, I will lift my hands in prayer and in praise. With all that is within me, I will seek desperately after God. Here's why I ask the question. I ask because I would bet that some of us showed up to church today and we aren't experiencing the very joy and satisfaction that God freely offers us. And the reason we're not experiencing that joy and satisfaction is because we failed to make that deliberate decision to be desperate for him. Instead, what we're doing is this. We are making deliberate decisions each and every day of our lives to be desperate for lesser things in his place. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, I see it all the time. I'll have people come in and meet with me and they'll say, James, I'm just not growing spiritually. Uh, There's sin in my life that keeps overtaking me. I have felt really far from the Lord for a while now, just in this really dry spiritual place. And so I'll always ask the question, well, tell me about life. Like what's been going on with you? And without fail, the most common responses I get are these. Well, you know, we haven't been in a church, in, in church for a long time because my kids play sports on the weekends. Uh, We're not engaged in a small group because, you know, life's busy and work's crazy and we just got so many things going on. Uh, And I haven't spent time in prayer or or in the word or in private worship in, in I don't know how long because it's just hard to find the time or motivation for those things. Listen, if you've ever made excuses like those, you know what you're doing, right? Look, you are making deliberate decisions to be desperate for lesser things in the place of God. This is what you're doing. And, and it's so important for you to see it that way because the lie that too many of us often believe is this. This is just the way life is. 
No. For most of us in the room, not all of us, I don't want to lump all of us into the same category, but for most of us in the room, look, life is the way it is because we choose for life to be that way. We choose to be busy. We choose to have crazy schedules. We choose to fill our lives with things and commitments that that draw us away from God and crowd him and even his people out of our lives. And I want to make my point by going back to this whole kids sports thing for a moment, if I can. And I know I'm about to get all up in some of your business. And I just got to be honest. I tried to not go here today. Uh, But for weeks now, when I knew what I was preaching today, I just felt the Holy Spirit of God impressing upon me, James, you got to go here. You need to talk about this. And so at the risk of offending some of you, I'm going to talk about this. But please just know, I only risk offending you as your pastor because I love you and I am for your joy and satisfaction. I'll never forget being nine years old. uh, I begged my parents to sign me up for baseball. I grew up playing ball all my life and Uh, basketball at six, baseball at nine, started playing football in middle school. Well, again, nine years old, my parents signed me up for the best baseball team in our county at the time. And I was stoked to play with these guys. Several of them were my friends. But when the coach sent the schedule to my parents, they immediately recognized they have games and practices on Wednesdays and Sundays. And so my dad called the coach and he said, hey, I just want to let you know my son can't be there on those days. Is that going to be a problem? And the coach said, yes, if he can't be here, then he can't play on this team. And so my dad said, okay, well, he can't play on your team. We need our money back. And then they came back and they told me, hey, buddy, uh, we love you. You can't play on that team because our family together, we're going to be worshiping God and seeking God alongside the people of God on those days. And so you know what they did? They signed me up for the worst team in the county (laughs) because that team didn't play or practice on those days. And it was frustrating as a kid, especially when we played the other team that I was supposed to be on and they whipped our tails every time we played them. And I'm just saying, I could have been playing with those guys. So I was frustrated, but I can tell you as an adult, I'm grateful because my parents taught me an invaluable lesson by the decision they made. And the lesson was this, that God always comes first. He always comes first, that there is nothing else in my life that deserves my time, my attention, or my affections in front of him or his people. And I know that some of you are thinking right now, James, you sound a little old school, bro. What are you you doing? Sounds a little legalistic, man. That's not my heart. It's not my heart at all. Parents and, and future parents in the room, I'm just trying to get you to think for a moment because this is a cultural issue that I think a lot of churches have not addressed and we need to start talking about it more. It's a problem. Parents and and future parents, you have to think all the time about the implications of the decisions you make, not just for your own lives, but for the lives of your children. You see, when you look out across culture, younger generations are falling away from the Lord and his church at an alarming rate. And there are so many different factors that play into that, but one factor that I believe plays into that is Christian parents who refuse to make countercultural and even gutsy decisions that say to their kids, we will not allow lesser things to crowd God or his people out of our lives. Hear me, I just am trying to get you to understand that desperation is a deliberate decision. And I don't care if you're a parent, if you're single, if you're in middle school, high school, college, whatever it is, look, the most important decision you can make every day of your life is to be desperate for God. So how do you make that decision? How do you make it? 
Well, the answer goes back to what we talked about last week in regards to seeing God clearly, and, and here it is. The person who sees God clearly desires to seek God desperately. How do you choose to be desperate for God? It starts with you seeing God clearly. Because when you see God clearly, you, you have this desire birthed in you by God himself to then seek after God desperately. And this, again, is the pattern we see all throughout Psalm 63, all right? I want to show it to you. If your Bibles are open, you can look back at the text with me if you want. In verse 2, David says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, and I have beheld your power and glory. So apparently David had a similar experience to the one Isaiah had that we looked at last week from Isaiah 6. If you weren't here last Sunday, go watch that message. Uh, we have no details of this experience in David's life, but all we know is that in Psalm 63, David's saying, I've been in the sanctuary of the temple and I have seen the holiness and the power and the glory of God. He goes on in verse three and, and he lets us know that he's seen the steadfast love of God. That word for love there is the Hebrew word hesed. It's this beautiful word that refers to the loyal or unfailing love of God. I love this. It's a love that doesn't depend on your performance. Doesn't depend on what you do or don't do, what you get right, what you get wrong. This is a love that God gives to broken, sinful people just because God wants to give it away. It's a loyal love that depends on God and his grace alone. David goes on and, and in verse seven, he sees that God has been his help, past tense. I love this. Just visualize the scene with me. Here's David in the desert, suffering, um, knowing that if they find me at any moment, they could kill me. Yet he's thinking back and he's remembering, God, you've helped me before. I've been in situations that have been tough and you helped me through those situations. And so God, right now in this present moment, in light of what you've done for me, I'm gonna cling to you and I'm gonna trust that you're gonna help me again. Can I just tell you, in times of suffering and hardship in your own life, it is so important for you to do that very thing. You see, here's the mistake I see too many people making, and I've made it myself, like I'm guilty as well. Oftentimes, when we suffer or we go through hardship, we only focus in on the help we need right now, which can be very, very discouraging. All you're looking at is what you lack, what I don't have. And again, what we need to do is look back and go, oh yeah, God's helped me before. And if God helped me then, he can do it again. And so God, I'm gonna cling to you right now and I'm gonna trust that help is on the way. And then finally in verses nine through 11, I love this, David sees God as his deliverer, as his deliverer. God, you've, there's some people after me, uh, some people who wanna destroy me, but God, I'm gonna be okay because I have you on my side. Isn't that good? Like how many of you know that, that when God is on your side, when God is your deliverer, you have no need to ever defend yourself from your enemies. How good is that? But instead you can rejoice like David did in the fact that, that God is your deliverer. And I love the language that he uses too, by the way. He's so bold here. Uh, my enemies, they're gonna go down into the earth. I think he's speaking of a grave there. They're gonna meet the power of the sword. Jackals, wild dogs, gonna eat my enemies up one day. I mean, that's bold, right? But he's just recognizing, I know what God can do and I don't know what God will do and so I will rejoice in him. What's the result of all this seeing? Seeking. God, in light of what I see, I will praise you with joyful lips. 
I will bless you for as long as I live. Earnestly and diligently, I will seek you all my days. Can I just tell you, when you see God clearly, that same desire lives in you. When you see God, don't miss this, the holy God of the universe, as your good father who loves you with hesed, a a loyal, unfailing love, a God who wants to be your help, a God who promises to be your deliverer. When you see God in that way, all you want is to know him more. Like, are you kidding me? That's who God is? Of course I'm gonna seek him. Of course I'm gonna walk with him. And then as you seek God desperately in that way, God, what does he do? He satisfies He satisfies. This is why I would say to you, and and with this we'll be done. This is why I would say to you that putting yourself in environments and engaging in spiritual practices that allow you to see God more clearly are so important. It's why church matters so much. It's why small groups matter so much. Why serving matters. Why first Thursday gatherings matter. It's why you spending time alone in prayer and in the word and, and in private worship matters. You don't do those things just to do those things. And I know in a context like ours, right, the good religious South, a lot of people do those things just to do them. Went to church today, check it off the list. God read my Bible today, check it, served in a ministry, gave a little bit of money this week, check it off the list. God, look at all I'm doing for you. Can I just tell you, Christianity is not about what you can do for God. And let's just be real, there's nothing you can do for God anyway. It's not like he needs you, but he wants you. It's not about what you can do for God. You see, you put yourself in environments and you engage in spiritual, spiritual practices so that you can see more clearly who God is and what he's done for you. And when you see that, what do you do? You seek him. Hebrews eleven six. God rewards those who seek him. And what's the reward of seeking God? Him. You just get more of him. And the more of him you get, the more satisfaction God gives you. I'll share a quick story and then we'll pray. Uh, Every Wednesday morning, our staff, we pray together for each other, for ministries. We pray for you guys. And uh, this past week on Wednesday morning, I had no idea what we were supposed to be praying for. (laughs) Like I usually walk in very prepared. I was at a loss. And so 10 minutes before we were supposed to start, I'm like asking God, God, what are we supposed to do today? And God, just like he said back to me, read Psalm 63 and then pray as a staff that God would give you desperate hearts. And I just have to tell you, it was one of the richest, sweetest, most convicting, most joy-filled staff prayer times we have had in months. God just moved in a powerful way. So much so that many of us just walked out of the room, you know, just wiping eyes. I mean, God just showed up. And so I thought as we close today that we would have a similar prayer time and that we as the people of Cross Point would just pray and ask God to give us hearts that are desperate for him. And so will you just join me in prayer right now all around the room? And as we often do, I would even just give you permission and freedom if, if you feel led to take on a different prayer posture right now, do that. If you wanna get on your knees or even come to the front of the room or stand and lift your hands, like whatever it is, whatever it is you can do that. And as you're getting situated, I also want to ask our prayer team to come and to get in their places, wherever they are. First and foremost, I want to speak to the people in the room who showed up today without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe you are that person 
who has been looking to all sorts of other things for joy, for peace, for satisfaction, and none of those things have have offered you what you're looking for. And today something finally clicked. Like God has shown you in the past 35 minutes, hey, what you need is me. You need a relationship with me. You need me to change your life. You need me to meet your needs. You, You need me to fix all the brokenness that exists in you. And if that's where you're at today, if you know that that what you need in this moment is to make a very deliberate decision to put your 